Okay, I've just come from um, Edinburgh. I was there in the morning and uh, I didn't get home, so I've had a wee bit of a disaster in that uh, the printer's not working in the office, so I had to write out desperately by hand what I was going to say. But my writing's rubbish. It's worse than any of the doctors here, so uh, hopefully I'll be able to interpret my own writing. How do we know? Such, this is just such a hugely, hugely important thing. How is it possible for us to know God? How, how can we know anything? Um, I'm not from Dundee, but I actually really, really like the Dundonian accent. I think it's brilliant. I think the way that words are used is fantastic. And I love the word Ken, because I'd, I'd only heard the word Ken out of the Bruins before. And it's just, somebody said to me once, came up to me, I just thought it was great. They says, how'd you Ken? And the thought went through my mind, what if your name was Ken? You know, G-Ken Ken, and so on. Just very, but how do we know? How, do we, how, how can you actually know anything? And especially, how can we know who God is? Can we want the next one? Um, what is the chief purpose for which man is made? We said that the chief purpose for which man is made is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, that one underlies everything that we're going to say. But how do you know who God is? How do you know how to glorify him? How do you know how to enjoy him? Let's go on to the next one. What role has God given us to direct us how to glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how to glorify and enjoy him. Now, I'm going to come back to that because that's what we're looking at today. But let's go on to the next one. All right. How's your epistemology? I've been dying to use this word ever since Monday. Were any of you here at the lunch bar on Monday at, down at the, the bridge? A few hands here. Right. Now, there was a, a lady there who asked me, I don't know if you're here actually, who asked me some, uh, uh, some great questions. But when she started talking about the epistemological foundation for what I was saying, there were a few of you who are as thick as two short planks and you were just going, what? What is she on about? Well, you remember she did the follow-up question as well, and you were still going, what is she on about? But I think epistemology is a great word. And you guys, when you go into school tomorrow, I want you to say to your teacher, you know, we were thinking about epistemology last night. Can you teach us about that um, and see where your teacher goes? How's your epistemology? Now, epistemology is just the philosophy of knowledge. It's just asking, how do we know anything? It's just a big word for what we've been saying. And the key things here are to ask, is knowledge possible? That may seem strange. You know, of course knowledge is possible. But how, do you, how can you actually know anything for absolute certainty? You know, I've, I've used this illustration a lot, but it's, it is strange. How do you actually know that you're here and you're not dreaming this? You know, how do you know that you're not a fly dreaming that you're a human being? attending a service, discussing a question on how do you know whether you're... You, know, you, can go, you can play those kind of games forever. So when you think about how we actually know anything, how do we know anything is true? How do you know someone loves you? How do you know uh, what life is all about? How do you know God? There are three words that are used, belief, truth, and justification. That is, you can believe something is, is true. You can have something you say, well, this is true. Two and two plus four is true. Or justification is, you believe something is true and you've got reasons for it. You can justify it. Now, a lot of people, they just look at us and they just say, well, you're Christians and you just have a belief and it's just like belief in the tooth fairy. Um, how many very young children do we have here? Can I say this? Tooth fairy's not real. Sorry. 
but <laughs> sorry, Joanne. The tooth fairy, you know, they say, they say belief in God is like belief in the tooth fairy. And it's just a, a wishful thinking that people have. There's no truth in it at all. So before we answer this question, how can we know God? And we're gonna, are going to look at the, the scriptures. I, I want to just take a little bit more time thinking about how we know anything. And I've put three E's there. One is existence. Now, you're really, we're really being philosophical here. So Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore I am. How do you know that you're alive? Well, you're thinking. The very fact that you can even ask that question indicates that you are. I think, therefore I am. We exist. Experience. When we uh, experience things, we can know things through experiencing them. For example, um, I know that uh, yesterday was a really, really good day to be at Dens Park, if you're a Dundee fan. I know, because I was there, and I saw two great goals. So uh, you can experience things. Or enlightenment, where you kind of, it's something inside you, something, some people call it feeling, other people might call it conscious. You can just be deeply aware of something. Let's go on to the next one, because this is, again, how we know it's hot. How do we know? Now, what I'm going to use here is the three big words again, empiricism, rationalism, and revelation. Just bear with me just as we go through this. Imagine right now that there is a a cooker here, and on the cooker is a pan. How do you know whether that pan is hot or not? Okay. Well, empiricism is when you can touch it or taste it or whatever. So empirically, what you would do to find if the pan is hot, and again, don't try this at home, you'd put your hand on the pan and you go, ow, I got burnt. Uh, The pan is hot. You know that the pan is hot because you've, you've touched it. Rationalism is you think about it. You think, this is a cooker. That's a pan. There's steam coming out of the pan. I suspect with the cooker, with the electricity or the gas, flame, there's heat being generated. That heat's probably going to the pan, and so I am not going to touch that pan. You can work out in your head, rationally, that the pan is hot. Or, might be revelation. You may be a very small child, or you may just not be that intelligent to rationally work it out. And you're about to put your hand on the pan, and your mum shouts out, Don't touch that pan, it's hot! Now, then you know, because your mum is telling you, that the pan is hot. Now, those three words, in terms of knowing about God, how do we know who God is? How can we possibly know God? If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Romans 1. And what I want you to do is, um, the first person to find it, can you please tell me what, what page it is on the red Bible to help those who haven't found it yet? 1128, okay? Page 1128. And we're going to Romans 1 and we're going to verse 18. And here Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now this is real important. Verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now you understand what's being said here is that there's nobody who is really an honest absolutely honest, intelligent, coherent, observant atheist. In other words, there are people who are honest atheists who believe that there is no God, but they actually don't see the whole picture or they suppress things. 
And there are many other people who kind of have a wish fulfillment that there can be no God. And here what he's saying is, since what may be known about God is plain to them, God has made it plain to them. How has God made it plain? For since the creation of the worlds, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. We know God through what he has made. So if you do do that, um, some of us yesterday were talking about hill walking. If you do that hill walking thing, you just go, wow, this is stunning. This is beautiful. And it feels like a religious experience. It is a religious experience. I I personally, even though I wasn't a Christian, I could never have been an atheist because I I grew up in Easter Ross and I I lived above um, Nig Cliffs. And I used to go and walk along the cliffs. I've told some of you before. My mother must have hated me because she told me to go and play on the cliffs. And I, I would go and play on the cliffs. And I would just sit there. And sometimes when I was really questioning whether there was a God or anything like that, I just look around and say, of course, you know, don't be stupid. There is, I just don't know who he is. Um, but you can experience God in, 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 now in different ways, but that's one way in Romans' ways. Another is through recognizing that we are made in his image. Uh, go to Genesis 1. That's right at the very beginning of the Bible, so it shouldn't be that difficult. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, by the way, are both created equally in the image of God. Now, in the image of God does not mean that God looks like us. It means that we are created rational beings. It means in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. It means we are spiritual beings. It means we have a capacity for relationship as well as being able to think. And uh, that whole idea, Paul, going back to Romans, Romans chapter 2, Paul continues to say what that means, where he talks about God's law being written on the hearts of human beings. Uh, Let me read to you, perhaps the easiest part is verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, and he's speaking there of the Jewish law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witnesses, witness and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them why is it that every human being really does know that it is wrong to murder people that it is wrong to rape that it is wrong to steal because god's law is written on our hearts now we can experience what god has made we can recognize who we are we can think about things but none of that is enough i I, i'm wanting to argue this with you i'm I'm willing to argue this with anyone i'd be willing to argue that uh Empirically, C.S. Lewis said, I am a, 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 a Christian by empiricism. In other words, through, through what I contest. Empirically, Christianity makes sense. I want to argue that rationally it makes sense. But nobody here will become a Christian with those two things alone. Because here's the trouble. You see, we are not neutral beings when we come to consider this. We're not coming with a, bank, a blank slate. We are people who are, are actually blind. We can't see it. 
So we need this third one, Revelation. Um, let's find Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, to give you some idea of what we mean by that. And again, could maybe someone shout out the page number, Hebrews 1. It's like a competition here, see who finds it first. 1201. Go to 1201. Okay? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Well, here, in in this passage in Hebrews, we're being told, how did God reveal himself? The simplest way is to come and say And that's exactly what he did. And when you read the Old Testament, you will find that there are various ways that God spoke to people. Now, I've I've heard people say, if only God spoke to me, I would believe in him. But would you really? You know, it can be a very, very strange experience. Um, Now, I've met people who've had very different experiences. Remember one Muslim uh, man coming to the church here because he was in a flat in the Hawk Hill. He woke up in the middle of the night saying he'd had a dream about a Bible, and there was a sweet smell coming from the Bible. He opened the window, and he saw St. Peter's clock, which I've just noticed on the way in, by the way, is not working. Uh, But he saw the clock, which then was working, saw it was a steeple for a church, and and felt that God was saying to him, go to that church. Can God do that? Yes, of course he can. Does God normally do that? No. And sometimes, again, how would you know if you were relying on your dreams? If only I had a dream about God. But think about your dreams, or think about my dreams, which I wouldn't dare tell you. Often they're weird. How, how would you know it was God? How would you know that it wasn't a bad cheese night? How would you know that, that, it, was, you know, that it was really God speaking to you? I remember one time that we had a, a, an open day in the church here, and I think it was Pete Nixon over there, who, and Owen actually had done a piece of performance art reading the Bible. And there was a girl who came in, and basically it was kind of white noise, silence. And then every now and then, Owen's voice would boom out. You know, behold, your sins shall find you out or something. I don't know what it was. And this girl was sitting there, and she'd always talked to, to me about, you know, she'd heard voices and things like that in her head. And all of a sudden, Owen's voice boomed out. And that she got the fright of her life. Um, and I, I wondered if she thought, this is God really speaking to her or not. I mean, how would you know if these, when these things happen? And it's actually quite uncertain. That's why in the New Testament, it describes these former ways of God speaking to his people as being quite uncertain. We're not saying that they don't happen, but we're saying that there's, there's a lot of doubt that can occur in them. Theophanies, by the way, it's another big word, but that just means an appearance of God. The angels and so on, and uh, the angel of the Lord, who's kind of... Uh, a form of, of an appearance of Jesus Christ, some people think, and so on. Now, God can reveal himself in that way, but we believe that God has supremely revealed himself through this book, through the Bible. Now, that is a huge claim to make. It is an enormous claim to make. And I have to say this, it is one that many Christians in theory accept, but in practice don't. So we're going to go on to look at what the Bible says about itself, which is kind of a um, people will say, well, that's not fair. That's a self-witness. But I think you'll see that it makes sense. Let's go on to the next one, please, John. 
Uh, let's turn to Second Timothy chapter 3, which you read. Again, if someone can shout to me the verse, the page number rather. 1196. 1196, okay. 2 Timothy 3, and this is verse 14. Now, the, what Paul is speaking to here is a, man called, a young man called Timothy. And this is what he says to him. Timothy had been uh, put in charge of a church and was struggling with some issues. And he's being advised by Paul. And this is what Paul says. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I just want to suggest these four things that this small section teaches us about the Bible. Firstly, it tells us about the origin of the Bible. It is not a secular book, and it is not a book that is made up by human beings. There's plenty of religious books like that. Now, for example, um, I don't want to pick on any one religion in particular, but, but I will. Go and read the Bible and contrast it with the Book of Mormon. It's, they are poles and poles and poles apart. Just to read them, even just to read the two of them. Because the Book of Mormon is basically one guy taking King James Version English of the Bible and putting it into uh, 19th century America and trying to explain why God chose the Americans, especially white Americans, and why black Americans were inferior and why Jesus came to America and all the rest of it. And it's off-the-wall lunacy. But... People look at it and say, wow, yeah. Or, actually they don't, they look at it and say, no, that's off the wall lunacy, but it's the same as the Bible. No, it's not. It is not the same as the Bible. And there's a very big difference. And that's particularly seen in the origin. It is given by God. Now, how do we know it's given by God? I'm going to read to you a, a, an answer from a, a catechism called the Larger Catechism. Be thankful you're not learning this one, especially the children. Uh, how does it appear, says this question, that the scriptures are the word of God? The scriptures reveal themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the agreement of all the parts and the fact that throughout they give all glory to God, and by their light and power to convince and convert sinners and to comfort and build up believers to salvation. But only the spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man, is able to fully persuade that they are the very word of God. In other words, when you ask the question, how can I be absolutely convinced that this is the word of God? Actually, in and of itself, you can't. In and of itself, rationally, though it makes sense, logically, though I could argue it through, you really do need God's Holy Spirit to work in your life to, to see this is how this works. Now, I can only explain this from an empirical point of view. In other words, my experience. And you have to think about this. There was a time when I would read the Bible and I'd go, oh, this is so boring. And there was a time when I'd go to church and I'd just think, why would anyone put themselves through this torture? And I could, I mean, when I was made to go, I could tell you all the panes in the window or stained glass windows because they were great because you could count them up and multiply and do wee sums and, you know, all these kind of stuff. Because just, the Bible just didn't make any sense. It just didn't click. It didn't. But when I became a Christian... The Bible completely changed for me. And, and it was actually through 
the Spirit of God and through the Scriptures itself. And the more I've gone on as a Christian, the more I'm absolutely amazed and, and astounded at the Bible. Well, there's a prayer in one of the Psalms which says, Show me your ways, O Lord. And I think you, you need to come to the Scriptures and ask God to open your eyes. Another of the Psalms says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. So the origin of Scripture is from God. The purpose of Scripture, that's the second one there, its function, we're told it's very simple. It is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture is all about Jesus. This book is not a code book of laws. It's not even a code book of, of secret things. Have you ever read that book? If, if you have, you have my sympathy called The Bible Code by, I think it's Michael Drossin. Uh, it, it's really off the wall bananas because he believes that in the Hebrew letters you can work out secret codes. You know all these conspiracy theorists? Well, he's got the ultimate conspiracy theorist. And apparently the Bible tells you who the next pope's going to be. And the, bar, the Bible tells you, told you about George Bush. If only you knew the code. So it's really a secret code book. Um, come down from aliens or whatever, I don't know. Now, it's not that. It is not just a history book. It's not just a record of what people have thought about God. The purpose of the Bible is to communicate to us not only who we are, but more importantly, who God is. And above all, to communicate to us who Jesus Christ is. And that's why everything, including the Old Testament, and I say this to Christians, please don't think that Jesus only appears in the New Testament. Everything is about Jesus Christ. The third thing is the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible came about because it is God-breathed. And because of that, it is totally reliable. People will often say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. People who usually say that haven't read it. Sometimes I have to say that having read the Bible many, many, many times, yes, there are occasionally apparent contradictions in it that I look at. But I have been studying the Bible for over 25 years, and I say this as honestly as I can that I have not come across a single error in the whole Bible. Other people say, oh, of course the Bible's full of error. Well, actually, no, it's not. And it, doesn't, it makes sense that it wouldn't be because it's God-breathed. Now, that's important. Here's important to understand. We are not saying when we say, or the Bible is not saying, Paul is not saying to Timothy when it's God-breathed, that it was dictated. A very small part of the Bible was dictated. The Ten Commandments were... What, were they written on any of the kids know what the Ten Commandments were written on? Callum? Tablet. tablet. What kind of tablet? Stone. stone, yeah, exactly, just to get the right idea. Not Scotch tablet, but the tablets of stone. That was dictated. But very little of the Bible was actually dictated. This is a complete misunderstanding that lots of people have. They think you're saying it comes from God, and basically the writers kind of turned into zombies. And they... they God took over their minds and God took over their voices and they, they, that God took over their hands and they wrote. That's not what that means. When we say that it is God-breathed, we mean this. That God used human beings almost like living pens. That the personality, the context, the culture, that all of that is used in communicating God's truth. So, for example, Paul's letter to 2 Timothy... Who's Timothy? Who's Paul? 
Paul's an intellectual genius. That shows in his writing. Timothy's a young man. That shows in what he's being told. Some people say that, well, Paul sometimes had problems with women. Uh, I don't think so. But one of the things that does communicate is that Paul wasn't very confident in his own speaking ability. There are lots and lots of different things that you can look at in the Bible. And it's, it's, in that sense, it's living. It's both human and divine. It's God speaking through human beings. It's truth, God's truth, mediated through individuals and circumstances. It is completely the word of God in that sense. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we can think of the context of the Bible. But it's still God communicating. If you come here in the morning, we've been looking through Colossians. We're just about finished. Uh, But we'll be looking at that again next Sunday morning. In one sense, you'd have to look and you'd have to say, why does looking at a letter that was written to a small church in the middle of modern-day Turkey almost 2,000 years ago, why on earth would that be any relevant to me in 21st century Dundee, in my life, in my situation? The answer is because God took a real-life situation then, and he took real-life people then, and he communicated through his spirit what his word what, what he wanted these people to hear, and he did so in such a way that it would remain forever relevant. And as we've been looking through Colossians, without cheating, without making it up, without going for hidden codes, just by teaching what is there plainly and straightforward in the scriptures, many, many Christians, including myself, I find ourselves going, wow, God is really speaking to us through his word. And that's why it's so important. You see, we... People talk about worship and so on, and partly, a big part of our worship, and it is worship, is to hear God speaking to us through the scriptures. Okay, the fourth one, the sufficiency of scripture. See, in here, if you look at the second Timothy 3, it says, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. These are four functions that are mentioned, that the Bible does that. Um, there are others you could probably add as well that you can get from other parts of the scripture. Now, this is a really, really important thing because it's saying that the Bible equips us. Equips us for what? Equips us to be able to serve God. We may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, you get people say, well, all right, Dave, you're one of these academic Christians. You like the Bible. That's your job. You get paid. But I'm... I'm a practical Christian. You know, I like going out and helping people. You can really help people unless you're equipped to help people. It's a bit like, you know, you get these people who decide that they can go hill walking in Scotland at any time. And, you know, you get a bunch of tourists and they come and you get, remember the famous case, was it a German teacher who put on his sandals and his beach shorts and got his kids to walk up one of the mountains in Scotland? I don't think it was Ben Nevis, but something like that. He just thought it's summer, it'll be okay. They nearly all died because they weren't equipped for walking in the mountains. You cannot serve God by doing good if you are not equipped for doing that good. And it's the scripture that equips you for every good work. Now, that's, that whole idea of the sufficiency of scripture is really important. Because I suspect that most Christians today do not believe that. Most Christians say about the Bible... Ah, it's good. I've got a Bible, nice black book, or I'm a young person. I've got a multicolored pink 
women's edition or whatever, you know, whatever. If you go to these um, bookshops in the States, you see loads and loads of Bible editions, you know, Bible editions for young men, Bible editions for... I've always wanted to go in and say, do you have a Bible edition for dog walkers? And someone will do it, you know. It's Bible editions for all this. Look, that's not the issue. This book is a book that many Christians take and they say, yeah, 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 we've got the Bible, that's good. Nice to have a bit of the Bible. But I will guarantee you that you could go to a considerable number of churches and actually you might hear a verse from the Bible, but you don't need to take your Bible. The Bible's hardly ever opened. Because Christians have bought into this. We need something con- contemporary and for today. And they don't realize that the Bible is absolutely contemporary and for today. And it's sufficient it's sufficient for all that, that we need. That's a big claim to make. But there are those of us who can testify over many, many years that that has been our experience. The, you know, I, I study this for a living, okay? I have to say it's the best part of my job. It's the most thrilling part of my job to go. I don't go in on a Monday morning or Tuesday or whatever and say, all right, I've got to give a sermon. How can I make it really interesting? I need to get some really good illustrations. I need to get a few jokes here. We need to jazz up the whole thing. Uh, No, my attitude is I have to go in and find what does the Bible say. But don't you know what the Bible says? You're supposed to be a minister. No, I don't. I study the Bible all the time because God always has more truth to come out of his word and I am continually amazed at the depth and beauty that there is in the Bible let's go on to the next one uh, okay so let's just take these the empirical the rational the revelationary as regards the Bible empirically I would argue that you can test the Bible just as you touch the pan to see if it's hot I would argue you can read the Bible to see if it works you can read the Bible to see if it rings true it does not make any sense for anybody here to say, oh, no, I don't believe the Bible. It's rubbish. Have you read it? Have you thought about it? Have you considered it? So a sim- first challenge is simply this. I challenge you to read the Bible. I would suggest don't start at Genesis and go all the way through to Revelation because there are bits you'll really get bogged down in. But think about it. I think rationally you could defend the Bible. Uh, I-, I certainly would be prepared to do that. I I issue again a very, very simple challenge. Come to me with an error that's in the Bible that you found. See if you can find an error. I mean, I've read loads and loads and loads of books. People say, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, we can, we can, we can. I don't find it there. Revelationary. The Bible is supremely that. It's supremely the revelation of God in Christ to us. In uh, 1 Peter Chapter 1, if we can find that, that's, and someone please shout the page number as well. 1 Peter 1, 23. Anyone got the page number? 1218. This is an amazing, amazing verse. It says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. I'm reading... Nick Hornby's uh, How to Be Good just now. And the lead character in that says, you know what I like about born-again Christianity is the notion of starting all over. Wouldn't that be great? But how does that happen? How you become a born-again Christian is not by putting your hand up and going forward at a rally. 
that could be part of the process if you like. But how you become a born again Christian is by the word of God working in your life, convincing you of the truth of Jesus Christ and in urging you and enabling you to respond in, in worship and to respond in commitment in giving your life to Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that, that enables you to become a Christian. And for those of you who are not Christians or not sure or a bit confused about the whole thing, I would say get into the word. Christianity Explored is a great way to do that. Hearing, actually hearing sermons is a great way to do that. Not the kind of cheesy sermons or, and if you don't know what I mean by that, ask. Um, and, and not the kind of, you know, waffly, you know, cute and cuddly sermons, but just teaching of God's word. For those of us who are not Christians, or sorry, those of us who are Christians, uh, please turn to Hebrews 4 verse 12. And, and this is the one I want to, to finish with. And again, if someone could show you the page number. 1203. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You don't, as a Christian, need a prophet. You don't need a seer. You don't need a minister. You don't need a pope. You don't need a mentor. You don't need someone, a book that someone's going to come and tell you and sort everything out in your life. What you need is to engage with God and to listen to God. And God, God's word will penetrate deeper into your life than you ever even thought existed. The word of God is scary. It's really scary in some ways. It can be, I'll give you one personal example. When I was about 17, I'd not long been a Christian and I went to church. And three Sundays in a row, the minister in that church was a church of Scotland. The minister in that church was preaching through the Bible and he addressed my circumstances directly and explicitly. Now, I, I know that I'd told nobody. I'd even thought, I even went through my head, I thought, have I, been, have I been in someone's room and been asleep and been sleep talking or something? Because if I'd told anybody and they were my friend, I would never have spoken to them again because I would not have believed they hadn't told the minister. But it was God. It was God addressing through the word. Not God saying, David Robertson, or as I've been in one church, I, I was in the, I had a motorbike and had a black leather jacket, and the, the preacher said, there is somebody here with a black leather jacket, which I thought was pretty observant, and I was the only one, you know, and he has a problem, you know, and he needs to come to know Jesus, and I was a trainee minister for the free church, and I thought, oh, well, I, if I don't, I better, <laughs> and, you know, it was just, that was condemned to be prophecy. It wasn't prophetic, it was pathetic, it was just a, a go at manipulating people. What's much more exciting is when you come and, you know, you're hassled and frazzled and just all over the place. And God's word is expounded and preached. And you know that God is speaking to you. It's just an incredible thing. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. 